0: The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. This morning we are continuing today in our series. Now we're in book three or week three of the, the going through the book of Ephesians. Today we're going to be wrapping up chapter one, and it is it's amazing for me. Um, the time seems to be flying by. That my family's already we've been here for three months basically, and it flies by because I go back and I look at our daughter who just had turned one when we moved, and how different she is now compared to even a few months ago when we moved here this summer, right? She's in that amazing. Amazing stage where, especially if you're a parent with a young kid, you'll remember this because you're living it. It's like every week you wake up and you're like, Who is this new person who's now living under my house? Right? Like uh, when we moved here, she couldn't even walk, she was just crawling everywhere. And a few months later, now we entered the phase this week that everything in our house is now an obstacle to be climbed on top of. But this is a fun stage of parenting, right? So we had a, a water table in the backyard that for months, she was very content to have her little toys and to dip into the toys and to sit there and play with. And this week, she suddenly realized, you know what's more fun than playing with the water table? Standing in the water table. Of course, she can't get down from it, right? So she can get in and then she screams until one of us comes in and gets her down. It's, it's that fun phase where when you hear quiet in the house, you don't think, oh good, she's finally quiet. You go, oh no. <laughs> What, 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 what are they up to? My wife had one of those this week where she's like, suddenly it's too quiet and she walks into the bathroom off the main hallway upstairs in our house and there is Aria standing on the countertop looking at herself in the mirror. This kid had to realize that if she opens this cabinet and opens this cabinet, I can create a little step onto another step and then climb up and stare at myself because this is just hilarious, right? And so, so we're that phase and it is amazing at, at how, kid, how quick young kids grow, right? They don't have to think about it. You just feed them a little bit. They sleep a little bit and boom, they, they grow. And it, it's just a natural thing of life. But as I was thinking this week about growth and what it means to grow as a person, I was, I was thinking of for us as adults in our spiritual lives, growth isn't that easy, right? It's, it's not just this simple thing where we just assume, okay, I'm just going to do one or two easy things and I'm going to wake up and suddenly I'm going to be growing so much as a person. I had a, a seminary professor who repeated the phrase often. He said, no one drifts into holiness, No one drifts into holiness, meaning if you want to walk with God, if you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus, it takes intentionality and it takes effort for us to put forward. And today, as we continue through this book of Ephesians in chapter one, we're going to look at three keys that Paul outlines here, three keys to spiritual growth that he both demonstrates in his own life and that he prays for, for this church that he is reaching out to. And so we're starting today in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And we wrapped up the first two weeks. We looked at, if you remember, it was one sentence in in the original documents in verses 3 to 14. This kind of um, blessing of God, of all that he has given us in Jesus. And now he transitions here in this text before he gets into kind of the main argument of his letter in chapter 2. So chapter 1, starting at verse 15, says this. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. See, the first key to spiritual growth that we see here demonstrated in how Paul is living his own life, the first key to spiritual growth is to develop a thankful heart. To develop a thankful heart. He says there for this reason, he's looking back at what he's just said at all the blessings that we have in Jesus for all who would believe. And he's seeing how they have received it and not just intellectually believed it, but I'm living it out through their love for others. And he says that he does not cease to give thanks. Now, this is not like a literal translation, like all Paul is doing all day long is sitting there saying like, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. It, it's just the same expression that we would have when we tell our kids like, man, you are always on your phone or you are always playing video games. We don't necessarily mean that every single waking moment, but it's just such a regular pattern of life that it's something that's, that's always going on. Paul is saying thankfulness from him is a regular practice in his life. And I think developing for us a thankful heart is key for us in growing to be like Jesus. See, the reality is, I think we all want to be thankful people. I think we all want to be thankful people because think of the opposite of it. Think of someone who is not thankful, right? If you're not thankful, a few words that I would think of to describe someone who's never thankful for anything are bitter, selfish, angry, and jealous. And I don't think we want to be that, right? Like no one's like, you know what I want today? I want to be more bitter and jealous. Like, no, we, we don't want that. We want to be thankful, But I think we struggle sometimes because our thankfulness revolves around the circumstances in which we live our lives. But I think it can transition for us if I think we need to stop thinking of thankfulness as just a response to the circumstances of life, but thankfulness is actually a discipline that we need to learn to practice in our lives regularly. Thankfulness is more than just a response, but it should be a discipline that's a part of our lives. It's something for our benefit, that we need to learn to practice even when we don't feel like it. So I greatly enjoy, as I have said here many times, I greatly enjoy cycling and riding my bike. But what do I not greatly enjoy? The fact that to do so here when the alarm goes off at five something in the morning and it's still dark out and I realize if I want to ride today, I have to get up now and get my coffee and get my breakfast so I can get my ride in and get back before I can now get to work. But why do I get up? Why do I do it even when I'm tired? When the first thing in the morning is not like, oh, what a beautiful day. I, get to, I go, I'm tired. If I just hit the snooze, if I just turn the alarm up. No, why? Because it's a discipline that I know will have long-term positive effects, even though in the immediate moment, I don't necessarily want to do it. See, Paul demonstrates that himself. Remember when we talked about this letter, Paul is writing this letter, talking about his overflowing thankful heart. And he writes this from prison. He's locked up for preaching the gospel. His life is not some great circumstances of of ease and of pleasure. And so Paul is, is writing this and demonstrating this in his own life. So thankfulness is such a hard thing to practice because you could be sitting there being like, so so what are you saying? Like, am I just supposed to, like, fake it till I make it? Like, at the end of the day tomorrow, I'll be like, God, thank you for making this an incredibly difficult day. Amen. Right? You're going to wake up tomorrow. God, thank you. I'm exhausted. My kids kept me up all night and I didn't sleep. Thank you. No, it, it's not necessarily supposed to be like that. The, the question is this, that I think we're, we often get a rub with in our lives, is how can we be thankful when life is hard? How can we be thankful when we don't feel like it? Take our cue from Paul. Paul. See, thankfulness doesn't focus on our response or our circumstances. Thankfulness focuses on God and what he's done for us. What is he thankful for? He says, I, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks. See, when our thankfulness goes off of our own circumstances and looks to Jesus, we always have something to be thankful for. We always do. And what thankfulness does is it takes the focus off of ourselves and our problems and puts our focus back on Jesus and what he's done for us. So are we, are you practicing thankfulness in your life? I would just, I would just challenge you to, to try it this week. Try it this week. If, if you haven't had regular patterns, try it this week. Maybe you could say, God, I am exhausted tonight and this has been a really hard day, but I am thankful that you are a God who never tires. You never sleep and you are always there for me. When you blow the assignment at work, when you get a bad grade on the test, be like, God, I thank you that even though this was a mistake and I messed up here, you don't love me any less. And your care for me is the same whether I perform here or not. You are still the same towards me. And we can be thankful. Notice how it takes our perspective off of our immediate circumstances and reframes them with who God is. So we can develop this thankful heart in our lives, the discipline of thankfulness that Paul demonstrates for him. He then goes into this prayer that, that he has prayed for them in Verse 16. It says as he remembering you in my prayers verse 17 that the god of our lord jesus christ the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working Of his great might. See, the second key to spiritual growth that Paul outlines here is that we need to learn to depend on the Holy Spirit, to depend on the holy spirit. Notice here that that the whole trinity here is, is in view here in verses 17 and 18 that the god, the father of glory, the god of our lord Jesus Christ would give us the spirit. The whole trinity is present in our salvation and in our growth into salvation. And Paul's specific request is that god would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that our heart, the eyes of our heart that our hearts would grow into what he has done for us. Now, if you were raised in certain backgrounds, when someone talks about the spirit of wisdom and revelation, you might go, oh, what is this? Like, what's talking about here? What what Paul is not saying is you need to look for some extra revelation outside of God, outside of God's word, and that will give you greater spiritual insight. Notice, and in, in at least in the text that we, we have printed in the ESV, the Spirit there is capital S. It's talking about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit himself would give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, of Jesus, of who God is he's talked about already in the book of Ephesians that this was a mystery of what God was going to do. And so talking about the spirit revealing, he's using the same language that it was hidden from us in the past. And so we need God to reveal to us this plan that he has for us in Jesus. The spirit himself can open our eyes to give us insight into who God is and to who we are, (coughs) excuse me, in Jesus. And he prays here for three requests. He rattles them off pretty quick, verse, starting in verse 18. The first thing he prays, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. We talked about this last week. What he's praying for is that this hope that we all have if we are followers of Jesus, that is guaranteed to us by his Holy Spirit, that we would recognize this and we would live into the great hope that we have, which he's just praised God for. His second prayer request is that we would understand the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The saints here are not like some select group. Like these are the really spiritual Christians. Saints is literally, it means the holy ones. Those who have been made righteous by Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, in God's eyes, in Paul's eyes, you are a saint, you have been made holy by God. And because of that, we have this glorious inheritance. Again, he's talking right on what he followed right before. We're talking about this inheritance that we have coming where we become God's true people in heaven. And there is no sin to violate this relationship. He's praying that we would get, understand what it is that we have coming for us. And not only that, his third prayer request that we would understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. I love that phrase. He prays that we would start to grow in our understanding of the power of God to us in our lives. He uses this term, which I love, immeasurable greatness, See, we often in our lives, we measure power, right? By comparing it to something else, right? Oh, so that's a powerful car. How many horsepower does it have? Oh, you, so you say you're strong. Well, how much can you lift, right? So there's, there's this measure. When we think of God's power, we can't just think of something a human being can do and God can do it better. He's saying it's immeasurable, meaning our minds cannot contain. We don't have a standard for which God's power lies that he has on display that he can put towards us. See what in essence what Paul is praying here with these three prayer requests is that we would live into who we already are in Jesus. That we would realize this hope, this inheritance, this power that we have, that we would realize who we already are in Jesus. See the blessings are ours already and Paul is praying that we would start to live into these blessings each and every day but it's impossible for us to do this, to have this hope, to have this knowledge of God's power. It's impossible for us to do this on our own. We, in our own understanding and our own efforts cannot fully grasp what it is, which is why he prays that it would be the spirit who would open our eyes to see these things. See, it's only possible for this kind of growth to happen in our lives if we are depending on the Holy Spirit each and every day. So what does it look like? What does it look like to depend on the Holy Spirit? Well, it's really hard. One of those things that's really hard to measure, to grasp. It's really hard for me to look at your life and to say, oh, yes, on a scale of one to 10, this is your dependence. Because dependence is not an action, but it's a posture of the heart. Your dependence upon God is not just a specific action that you do, but it's the posture of your heart each and every day towards God. Now, there are certain actions that are pretty consistent amongst people who do depend on the Holy Spirit regularly in their lives. What, what are some of those actions that would, that would be regular people who depend on the Holy Spirit? Well, it'd be that prayer is a regular part of their life. Prayer is an ongoing conversation with God. It's not just a a once-in-a-while occasion, but prayer is an expression, an action of dependence upon God. Obedience is a regular expression of dependence upon God. Obedience, even when the consequences are unknown, obedience, even when the consequences look like it could be adverse to our lives. Those who depend on God obey and leave the consequences to Jesus trust in our lives is a characteristic action of those dependent. Trust even in, even in the seemingly small things of life, that we trust God even with those. See, it's the posture of our heart, not just one specific action. I was reading this week about dependence upon God, and I was reading through various articles and sermons that pastors had preached, and I came across one, and it was the, I think it was the title, or it was very prominent in it. And I read this quote, and it was by a pastor who I've read and listened to a lot, and I greatly respect. And I was like, Oh, that's ridiculous. And I almost hit the X. And then I literally like paused and I felt the Holy Spirit kind of say to me in my office, like, is it though? Or do you just not like what he said? And I was like, oh. All right, so I went back and I read it. And, and here's the thing, if, if you find dependence upon God very easy in your life, then you can just tune me out for the next couple minutes because I don't. I don't find dependence. I regularly would rather depend upon myself than anyone else, right? I wanna be independent. I don't wanna need anyone else. And what, what I read here kind of convicted me. And so I wanna share with you what God kind of convicted me with this week. And this phrase that this pastor said is this, the greatest threat to your dependence on God is your current success. The greatest threat to your dependence upon God is your current success. I read that, I'm like, that's ridiculous. And then I was like, but is it though? See, in moments of crisis, it's easier for us to depend on God because we have that acute desperation, right? When our marriage is like falling apart and tanking, we just pray about it. No one has to tell us to, right? We just naturally do. But what about when our marriage is good? What about when things are fine, when we're getting along well? Are we still depending upon God for health and growth in our marriage? When, when our kids are rebelling and walking away from God, it's easy to cry out in desperation and to see God. But, but do we pray the same way for our kids when they seem to be following Jesus and things are going well and, and we seem to be successful as a parent? See, it's easy when the finances are in dire straits when we don't know how we're gonna make the next payment, when we don't know where the next paycheck will come from, to cry out and depend upon God for that. But what if we're living comfortably and God's blessed us? Are we still depending upon him in our finances? It's easy to pray for our church when it's going through difficult circumstances and there's change and there's challenge, but are we praying just the same for our church even when there's health and growth and people are coming back and God is working? See, what this question gets to, which is why I think I push back so strong in my flesh against this, is that this pastor asked this question, are we depending on God or are we just going to God to solve our problems? And so often I know in my life, when I would mask as I'm depending upon God, it's no, God, I have this problem, help me fix it. And then as soon as the problem is fixed, what do I do? I say, all right, I got it, it's all me now. And God's like, really? That, that's, that's the measure you want. You want to do it because it's just a very short matter of time. So you mess it up and you have to come right back again. And I, I was challenged this week in my own life, even in my own experience, right? I've shared with you, it was a weird, a weird, a unique space in my life where for a few years, I sense, all right, God is moving us somewhere else. We don't really know. It's if you feel God's moving you somewhere and you don't know where it is, it's easy to pray. Right? To be like, God, guide me into my future. God, guide me into your will. And now that God has done that, I was convicted because it's like, are you still seeking me that same way even though I've led you to here? Are you still seeking that you would live into my will, that, you would, that I would guide your future even though you're here now? Are you still seeking me and depending upon me in that same way? And the answer in my heart was, God, I'm not. Because I was looking to you in some sense just to solve a problem, not to depend on you each and every day. Friends, dependence upon God does not depend on just if life is good or not. God wants us, not just when we have problems, but in our success, in our prosperity, when he is blessing us to still depend, to still trust, to still do those same things, to depend on the Holy Spirit each and every day to grow us into the image of Jesus Christ. This last, this last key to spiritual growth kind of comes off of this third prayer request that he has. He, he talks about in verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us believe. And it's like Paul's writing this and he gets just so excited. He's like, I got to tell you more about this greatness. So he kind of riffs here for like four verses. Verse 19, according to the power or the working of his great might. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, The third key to our spiritual growth is to deepen our understanding of Jesus, to deepen our understanding of who Jesus is and what he wants from us. He literally says here in verse 19, working of his great might, that, that could be, those are three different words, all that kind of contain the same word of power, of working, of great strength, of might. Why does Paul talk about this so much in Ephesians? We're going to see this come up again and again and again, and it likely is due that he talks about God's power and God's power over all things more in this book than in any of his other letters because of where his people live. So Ephesians or the city of Ephesus was an ancient hub kind of in the ancient world. It was a religious center from people from all over. In fact, it included the temple of Artemis, which is known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was very common to have all these different religious views and spiritualities present. And as scholars have looked and studied, they found that a common feature amongst every single one was this extraordinary fear of hostile spiritual powers. That every religion in that city had this extraordinary fear that there's something out there, this hostile power that will be greater than the thing I believe in. Which is why Paul goes into such detail in talking about the absolute supremacy of Jesus over all powers. And Jesus has power over all things. So he shows here this demonstration of God's power. First, the first demonstration, which is quite powerful, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. None of us can do that, right? That is a powerful demonstration of God, the resurrection showing that God just does not make, make nice things better. He makes dead things come to life and he does it in Jesus. He raised him from the dead. And not only was Jesus raised from the dead, it says that he was seated with him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This idea of seated shows his finished work, that it's accomplished. That's why someone is seated next to the Father, The right hand is a position of honor and privilege and authority. It references back to Psalm chapter 110 verse one that says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In fact, Jesus applied these words to himself when he appeared before the high priest as he was tried before he was crucified. It's in Matthew, Mark and Luke where he says that you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power talking here about the reign of Jesus currently. Jesus doesn't just raise from the dead. Jesus now reigns over all things. As one author puts it, the resurrection proclaims he lives and that forever. The exaltation proclaims he reigns and that forever. He then gets into more specific. He says that Jesus' rule in verse 21 is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Universal acclamation over anything that exists in our world is to be given to Jesus. Not only for the present, it says, look, but not only in this age, but also in the one. To come In the Jewish mind, there was kind of two ages. There was the age before the Messiah, and then there was the age in which the Messiah came and made all things right. And he's saying, we kind of live in this in-between time, right? Where the Messiah has come, but we have not seen him yet come again. And we experience a part of what it has to be, self, to be saved, to be God's people, but there's a fuller expression still to come. Scholars talk about this already not yet tension that we feel here in the Christian life. And he's saying that, yes, in this age, Jesus reigns supreme over all things. And in the future age, Jesus also reigns supreme over all things. His position does not change as history moves along. He's saying that he put all things under his feet. This is a reference to Psalm chapter 8, where it talks about how these powers are not just inferior to Jesus. It's not just that they're not as great as Jesus, but they are subject to him that he reigns over them. See, we, we may think, well, how does, how does knowing Jesus affect my spiritual growth? Well, think about it. One of the best ways to improve any relationship is to get to know the other person, right? Think about back to like dating 101. What is like dating 101? What do you do? Ask a good question and then shut up and listen, right? Like get to know the other person, And I think sometimes that would be good for us to do in our relationship with God is ask God a question and then just be quiet and learn. Listen, open your Bible and see who he truly is and understand, deepen our knowledge of Jesus and what he has done for us. See, I think one of the greatest problems that Christians face today is we call ourselves followers of Jesus, but we don't know Jesus very well. We know, we, we say, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm a follower of Jesus, but we don't really know Jesus all that well in our lives. We don't understand. We don't have the spirit reveal to us this all powerful God who is over all things reigning and ruling even right now. But I love how he ends there, this passage in verse 22 and 23 talking about the absolute supremacy of Jesus. And then he says, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. That Jesus is the ruling authority over his church. That his body, that is us, the church, those of us who are followers of Jesus, that Jesus is essential to the church. He guides, he sustains, and he enables the church to function. That Jesus is our sole authority when it comes to the church. See, I've been, I've been asked by people, I don't think really anyone here. So if this is you, I'm certainly not thinking If you, don't feel like I'm calling you out. But more friends and family who are from out of town, when, when they call or when they check in to see how things are, a common phrase that people will ask me, a common question is, hey, so you're the senior pastor now, how is your church? That's like a little pet peeve of mine. I'm not, okay, if you, if you do it, I'm not like, going to yell at you, right? But people ask me, how is your church? Like, it's, it's a small business that I started and I'm the CEO, so I now run it, right? Like, how is your business? Because you're the senior pastor, how is your church? Like, I own this thing, like it is mine. And I think that, that irks me the wrong way because it's so natural, even amongst Christians, to think, well, yeah, the, the senior pastor, it's, it's his church, right? Or, or the elders, it's their church. Or the pastors, it's, it's their church, This church does not belong to me. It does not belong to the pastors. It does not belong to you as the congregation. It does not belong to the elders. This church belongs to Jesus. Jesus is our authority. Jesus is our guide. Jesus is what has sustained us and by God's grace will sustain us in the future. It's not one person at all. In the moment the church becomes about any individual person, whether for good or bad, other than Jesus, we've lost our way. Because the church is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about one other person. The church is all about Jesus. He is head over the church. He is Lord of his church. He is the authority over his church. But not only that, it ends with this last expression the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is a very confusing and kind of unique expression. And it is among scholars as well. But I believe it that it's trying to say here, what, what he is communicating is that in the church, the fullness of Jesus who fills everything is experienced when the local church is gathered together. What he's saying is the church is Christ's fullness. Jesus is over all things. He reigns supreme over everything, but only the church has this unique relationship with him. Only the church is his body that he is head over. We have this unique relationship with him. And Jesus in his fullness fills the church in a special way with his spirit, with his grace, with his gifts that you cannot experience if you are not a part of a local church. Get this, there is something of Jesus that you cannot experience unless you're in community with others. There is something of Jesus that we will fail to grasp if we are not a part of a local church. A commitment to Jesus means a commitment to his body, a commitment to his church. Now I want to be very gracious, but I think this is challenging for us today in our world in which we live. There are those of you who are watching and you're online this morning. Please don't take this personal because if you've only watched online, I've never met you before. So it's not meant to be personal. I don't, know, I don't know who you are, but you cannot watch church online every week and experience the fullness of what Jesus has for us. It's just not the same as being here with God's people, serving, using your gifts, being, being in relationship with others. You cannot replicate it long-term online. It may have sustained us through for a season by God's grace, but it's not what will be best for our growth long term. Not only that, but they say that the average church-going American, the average person who, if they were asked, you go to church, would say yes, goes to church approximately 1.5 times a month. So for about an hour and a half a month, they're at a church. Maybe two weekends a month, but normally one weekend a month. So you're telling me that a church-going Christian is at the grocery store longer than they're at church in a given month. That's the average person in our world. See, I, I get, it can seem self-serving. It's like newsflash, local pastor says, go to church. He thinks it's important. You're like, well, yeah, no kidding. That's why you're the pastor. You have to say that, right? Like, but I just wanna, I just wanna graciously encourage you this morning. I want us to be committed to a church. If you don't feel at home here, if you're online and you're not in Morgan Hill, find a church that's close to you. If, to be at a gospel preaching, Jesus-centered church. And I want that for each and every one of us, not just so that we can count the numbers and be like, hey, check it out, five more people, or we got more and feel good about ourselves. I want it for us because the Bible says that if the fullness of Jesus dwells in the local church, there is something of Jesus that you will not experience if you are not a part of his body. I want you to be a part of a church for your growth for your sake, for your development as a follower of Jesus. Not just that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, more people. No, 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 no. It's that we want to see people connected into relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus empowers us to live this life. He has all this power that the Holy Spirit can open our eyes to. And he shows us how great he is, but he has a special relationship with his church. So let me pray for us as we ask that these things that Paul prays for would be true in our hearts and in our lives as well. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit, God, who comes and who dwells in our hearts and in our lives. God, I pray that we would learn what it means to truly depend on you, not just in problems, but in the good times as well that we would see you as the true God of every area of our lives. God, open our eyes to see the immeasurable greatness of the power of God at work in us. God, that we would recognize who you are and fall deeper in love with you and know you more and more. And that through our lives, a change would be brought about in our worlds. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.